Welcome to Concordia Journal Currents. My name is Travis Scholl. I'm Managing Editor of Theological Publications at Concordia Seminary St. Louis and Editor of Concordia Journal. Uh, the spring 2011 issue just came out and so we're going to take a little time to talk today with our two article authors. David Schmidt is with us, the Greg H. Bennett Chair of Homiletics and Literature here at Concordia Seminary and Reed Lessing, Professor of Old Testament here at Concordia and the author of many uh, commentaries including Amos and Jonah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and two volumes forthcoming on Isaiah. That's correct. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you both for being with us here today. And I just wanted to take a little bit of time to just kind of flesh out your articles in the journal and, and uh, maybe um, throw some pearls out there that might not be in there and talk just a little bit more in depth. So why don't we start uh, with your article, David, The Tapestry of Preaching. You open uh, making a distinction between theology of preaching and theory of homiletics. Could you maybe talk a little bit about, about what you saw going on? Uh, the homiletical field has just so many books that have been written recently on it, and I love reading them. And, uh, but I always find that as I'm reading them, I'm always asking myself, okay, now, what's the theology that's behind this? What's the theology that's, that's driving this? And, um, and since I'm always asking that question, I thought it would be better to start the article and kind of our thoughts about preaching from the realm of theology, that this is, this is kind of where we're coming from when we think about the preacher, the office of the, of the preacher, and what God is doing through the sermon. And so that it's a, a little bit more, I guess, transparent in terms of uh, what do we believe uh, that God is doing through the, uh, through the sermon, and then how is that reflected in the actual practice. I think sometimes with uh, homiletical theorists, you spend a lot of time on the practice, but it may not be so transparent as to what you believe God is doing through it. So, for example, you're, um, there are some uh, theorists now who are moving much more toward a uh, congregational-centered form of preaching, emphasizing the input of the members of the congregation to the point where you have uh, dialogue with the members of the congregation, um, and sometimes even the members of the congregation are the ones who bring to uh, the sermon some of its main ideas. And that the theology that lies behind that, I would say, would be one that is emphasizing more kind of a, a Quaker model of mm -hmm. preaching, where the Spirit's going to speak through the people who have gathered rather than kind of our Lutheran theology of preaching that God has called um, an individual into the office of preaching to proclaim the word to the people. So, you know, all, while, we, while we enjoy the recognition of the dialogical nature of preaching, the conversational nature of preaching, um, we kind of want to think through what's the theology that lies behind it. So that's why I started with that. Would you think that's almost, uh, in terms of the field of homiletics, yeah. uh, cutting against the grain a little bit to, to folk, kind of to be upfront <laughs> and say, well, I think well, it's stu to start with yeah, theology. Yeah, rather I mean, than I think it practice. may, it, it at least kind of lays on the table 
where we're at so that those who may approach preaching from a different theological standpoint at least know uh, what kind of moves they need to make as they're trying to appropriate things from this article for their own tradition. Yeah, yeah I think so. you use the word transparency there, which is probably a good thing. Right, yeah. 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 Well, why don't you walk us through the four components oh, okay. in the tapestry of preaching? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the basic theology uh, that we're working with is our understanding of the preaching office, that uh, preaching is authoritative public discourse based on a text of scripture, centered in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins for the benefit of the hearers in faith and life. And if you take that understanding of what the sermon is, you already have kind of the four threads that are present in that definition. You have uh, the text of scripture, so it's gonna be based on a text of scripture. So somewhere in the sermon, and it could be anywhere in the sermon, uh, the preacher is going to anchor uh, the sermon on the biblical text and help people understand what the text meant in its original context. Uh, then there's going to be a theology uh, that uh, works with the larger truths about God and God's relationship to people uh, in this world, and that will come out in the sermon. And then there will be a, a section of evangelical proclamation. There will be moments where you're working with uh, proclamation of law, proclamation of gospel, and there will be a thread of hearer interpretation where you're working with the lives of your people. So uh, the, the, the idea is that as you listen to or look at or think about or conceptualize your sermon on Sunday morning, at some point in the sermon, you're going to deal with the Bible, you're going to deal with theology, you're going to deal with uh, the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you're going to deal with the real lives of your people. Um, and, and those four things will happen at some point. And I, I seriously do believe that if you're missing one of those four, you really don't have a sermon. Uh, you really don't have a sermon. And so part of my work with students is always to kind of ask them where, you know, where is this thread uh, in the sermon? And, and uh, if it's not present, then I, I would say we don't have a sermon. If it is present, but it's to a very small degree, then we have a conversation. Well, why is, why is the theological confession so small in this sermon? Why is the textual exposition so large? And if you can answer that from a pastoral good pastoral reason. Well, we're spending a lot of time on this portion of the text because this is one that people are very conflicted over. Well, then I think you've got an appropriate reason for spending that time and, and having a large textual exposition. I mean, don't you find when you preach, is it kind of a, you find yourself kind of, you make choices. You have to make hard choices. No doubt, no doubt. But I, I, I very much appreciate your fourfold strategy. And, and I like your article in terms of using that for a pastor to evaluate himself because very few pastors have any form of evaluating what they're doing uh, other than the perfunctory nice sermon pastor. Right, yeah, and we come, you know, we come across great stuff in homiletical literature. So, you know, there's a, a new book out about uh, telling stories and preaching or about using images, and I try it, but... If I don't have a sense of how to evaluate it, I may find that I've kind of missed some of the essentials. Mm -hmm. And so this at least says, mm -hmm. go ahead and try it, but at least you have a way of looking over what you've done. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. One, well, I like what you say too, in the sense that you know we, we talk about to not preach law, then gospel sermons, but it also doesn't have to be, okay, if I have a 12-minute sermon, then I'm going to spend three minutes on the yeah, text, three wow. minutes on, but there's really, you're making a negotiation the whole right. time about, well, mm -hmm. if I'm going to focus here more on the text, then I'm 
Right, and you're asking, and you're always asking yourself why. Right. Why am I spending so much time on, you know, my fishing trip with my son in Montana? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if you can't give me a good pastoral reason why, if it's just because, well, I like the story, right. that's not good enough. That doesn't fit into what the office of preaching is. But if you have a sense of why this really fits uh, in terms of developing the hearer interpretation of the sermon, and it's appropriate, then I think, you know, go with it. But yeah, it's mm -hmm. a kind of a... <laughs> no, that's a good, a good uh, example of, at least my, in my own preaching as a parish pastor, uh, I, I was guilty of, of using an illustration simply because, you know, it was a good illustration. <laughs> right. And, and, right. You know, and even, I told it so well. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. right. But in terms of it fitting into a, a, a grid like you offer yeah. us, uh, you know, it, it really would be out, out of bounds. Yeah. 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 Well, maybe if the two of you can talk together, too, about what it, you know, you start with text. Yeah. You're an exegete. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what is really that relationship between text and proclamation, and, and how do you make some of those negotiations happen? Well, okay, I'll, I'll start the conversation <laughs> on this. I think at least one way to judge a sermon is do listeners leave that event thinking about being more informed by the text? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not by the illustration, right. not not by the uh, the rhetoric, uh, not by the application, not by the fact that oh you know you were speaking right to me, Pastor. All that is good, mm -hmm. um, but does the text stick? Mm -hmm. uh, and generally speaking, uh, I think that within our own denomination, uh, we have a long ways to go on mm -hmm. that one. Uh, and, and so I'm glad we're having this conversation. I'm glad, and I'm, I'm just going to say this. I don't want to embarrass uh, my colleague here, uh, but uh, the person to my left here is a very good exegete, and that's what makes mm. him such a good uh, preacher. Mm. Um, and, and I'm glad that you know, he and others are, are teaching aspiring uh, preachers because I, they really love the text. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's something that... Um, you know, our entire faculty is trying to promote, as well as staff, too, uh, to love texts. If you love well, the text... Well, it is text, kind of interesting. You know, sometimes you, you struggle and you think, you know, I don't want all my sermons to sound the same. Well, if you really preach the text, it won't. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have right. a different text, yeah. it's yeah. going to sound yeah. different. Uh -huh. yeah. But if you're, you're locked into this law, then gospel... Uh, they will begin to sound the same after right. about three or four weeks... No, uh, you're, you're no. pretty much stuck. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, uh, maybe to David, talk a little bit about you use the language of concrete definition in each mm -hmm. of these components mm -hmm. when you start talking about the art of preaching and maybe right. kind of flesh out a little bit of what you mean by that. Right. What I mean by concrete definition is that you could, you could write out a sentence that very clearly states what the aspect of the text that you're going to be working with, you're going to be proclaiming is what the theological teaching is, what the uh, law gospel metaphor proclamation is, and what the aspect of the lives of your hearers is. So, so for the sermon that I, I have on Abraham, the, the theological confession really is the privilege of prayer. That's, that's the, the main theological confession. When we're working with the text, I'm really emphasizing the struggle 
that Abraham has as he enacts this prayer uh, before Yahweh that is uh, seeking to intercede for, uh, for Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as he's faced with the wrath of Yahweh, he needs to trust in the mercy um, of, that he's heard previously in, in Yahweh's words to him. So there's kind of a very specific aspect of the text, teaching, law gospel, and the lives of the hearers that you can name. And I think being able to do that, to me, is so important because that's what makes the sermons sound different Sunday after Sunday. Now, now the two errors uh, would be that you could, on the one hand, you could not be very concrete. You could be much too general. So your theological confession is always, you know, that God loves us in Jesus. Well, you know, you're going to be doing that same theological confession again and again and again, Sunday after Sunday, and you're not really touching upon the whole counsel of God that can be proclaimed that will make the sermons you know, sound different from one another. So it could be too generic or it could be very concrete, but it could always be the same thing. So, for example, with hearer interpretation, it may be that, the, that, that at some point in my sermon, I'm really going to touch upon this, the, the idea that my hearers are called to share the gospel with others in the world. Well, that's great, but if that's, this, if that's what I say Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, then I've really limited what the life of a Christian is uh, in the kingdom of God. And, and, and the sermons all start to sound the same because it's the same teaching Sunday after Sunday. So it's either too generic that it never really gets concrete or it actually is concrete, but it's the pastor's favorite thing. Right, right, <laughs> and, you know, and I right. think we all have yeah, that. I know sure. when I was in the parish, I had, you know, I, there were certain texts that I loved to use and they became the, the place, the commonplace I would go to preach the gospel again and again and again. And, and if you do that all the time, it's very concrete, but it begins to sound the same. Yeah. I can remember being in a, a Winkle conference with uh, pastors when I was at the Bronx. And um, the question went around, what is kind of your, your dominant way of preaching the gospel? And it was interesting to hear the answers because it, it also forced everybody to be self-aware. So, you know, mm -hmm. somebody said, well, forgiveness of sins. And another person said, uh, liberation from any sort of bondage. Or, right. You know, yeah. and, and all, like you say, all those things are good, but you got to be kind of self-aware of, Am I becoming a one-trick pony almost mm -hmm. in a sense? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I guess I think too about, you know, when I think concrete, I think the opposite as too abstract. Right. And, uh, you know, you talk a lot about this is where I thought your distinction between act and attribute is helpful. If I preach God is love, that does, still doesn't get at the how. How right. is God love right. question? And, and that seems to me to be the key move. Right, we just, I just had this uh, in, in a class a few days ago that a, a student had a, had a wonderful sermon for the class. Um, and the sermon was very encouraging and very comforting with the, with the, the message that God cares for you. And, um, but it didn't have the gospel. Hmm. I mean, the fact that God cares for you, well, that's, a, that's an attribute of God that God cares, you know, that's something that God does. But, but the question is, how does God care for me? Where and when, where do I go to see, that, to see that care? And what we really want to do is we want to move from simply preaching an attribute of God to the actual 
action of God in love. I mean, I, I think of a time in, in my parish, we had a, an AA group that met, and sometimes I would talk with the, the people from the AA, and, and uh, you know, there's this, uh, this imagination of a, of a higher power. You turn everything over to the higher power as you understand the higher power. And uh, one of the women was talking to me, and she said, well, my, my higher power is this, um, you know, is, is a God who, who, is, uh, who, who is always loving for me and supporting for me. And then I asked her, I said, well, how do you know that? Hmm. And she said, well, I was down in Arizona, and I was in kind of the, the Sedona area with the Red Rocks, and it's kind of a spiritual place, and I saw this eagle flying, flying in the sky. I saw this bird in the sky, and I just, I just felt this overwhelming sense that, that God cared for me. Well, that's the historical action on which she is basing the, this change in her life. Right, right. And, you know, the, to me, it's, you know, we live in a culture that believes in a benevolent God. That is, that is like, you know, for Luther it was, you know, that God was wrathful. For us, it's that God's loving. Everybody mm -hmm. believes God is loving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They all do. And if I say God loves you, they're all going to agree. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to differ with me. But if I ask you, how is God loving? That's when we're going to start to disagree. Right. When I ask right. you, how do you know your higher power loves you? And she says, well, it's because of an eagle flying in the sky. That's when I say, here's how I know my higher power loves me. <laughs> right? Right. This right. God took on flesh and entered into, my, into this world and bore my sin and rose and is my savior. I mean, so there's kind of that. So for me, there needs to be that moment in the sermon where, you, where it actually enters into the activity of God, the, the work of God in Jesus Christ. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, we, we stay in the realm where a lot of people are going to agree and say, that's a great sermon, Pastor but we haven't preached the stumbling block of the cross. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe that's a good lead-in to, to uh, your article, Reed, because the yeah. servant does a lot of concrete mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. in <laughs> Isaiah. And so maybe, um, well, let's just get into it and, and talk about who really is the servant in uh, Isaiah 40 to 55. Well, my article tries to argue for the point that there are actually two servants in these 16 chapters. Uh, traditionally, uh, at least within our circles, evangelical circles, Lutheran circles, uh, people have uh, simply lifted Isaiah's four servant songs out of their context and uh, tried to find some historical reference to the servant, mm -hmm. uh, just a singular servant, uh, and that can kind of be debated. Um, but then they finally say that typologically uh, or... Um, Maybe these texts foreshadow Jesus. So my article is trying to uh, get us free from that. Um, first, we want to uh, interpret these songs in their overall context. Um, and then we begin to understand who the servants are. So the short answer is there are two servants. The first servant is Israel. Uh, who was introduced in chapter 41, verse 9. Uh, it's the first time you have the word servant in these 16 chapters. And then that informs us that the first servant song in uh, 42, 1 to 4 would be Israel. Uh, and then later in chapter uh, 42 of Isaiah, verses 18 and 19, this servant is blind and deaf. So if we say that this servant is somehow Christ, see, um, we, we've got some real contextual problems. 
Um, so there, there's been a lot of kind of exegetical gymnastics to try and kind of force, uh, well, okay, the, the servant is Israel, but it's, he's also Jesus. See, and what so, I so how do they do that? I mean, what are they, how do they get around the blind thing? If, well, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it was Bernard Doom, D-U-H-M, who in 1892 coined the term servant songs. And Doom believed that uh, these were just uh, randomly placed into the Isaiah scroll at the very end of the textual tradition. So that's basically how all people have interpreted these, is you just lift them out of their context and say, well, it might kind of be Israel, it could be Isaiah, it might be Moses, see? But it finally points to Jesus. At least evangelical conservatives would do that. Uh, and I'm simply saying that initially the first servant song would be the nation who's blind and deaf uh, and disqualified to be God's servant because of idolatry. That's what makes people blind and deaf in the book of Isaiah. Then the last three songs, we're, we're not trying to say, well, this is kind of Israel or Isaiah or Moses or Jeremiah. Uh, we're reading things not only contextually in the book of Isaiah, but canonically in the Bible. Uh, and the last three songs only refer to Jesus initially, and then I'll stop at this last comment. Uh, <laughs> at, at the end of the article, um, I, I point out that the servant is going to see his offspring, 5310. And, and so St. Paul uh, makes uh, you know, much of his theology based upon this. Paul is one of the justified offspring of the servant. So we can look then at... at at the servant's ministry in, in Isaiah 40 55 and also begin to see applications to our lives uh, just as he was called to suffer, um, intercede and the like, so are we called. Uh, so, so there's a, a, a complex uh, answer to you know, the servant. Uh, it would be Israel, Christ, and then baptized into Christ. We too uh, live servant lives. Uh, in a derivative way, but not certainly in a um, literalistic way, as uh, Isaiah presents this substitute servant for us. Yeah, would you, could you say then, in a, in maybe a, at the risk of oversimplifying <laughs> uh -huh. the complexity, that there's sort of a kind of a dramatic process that's oh, going on? Oh, yes, oh, yes. I mean, you're a storyteller, <laughs> see? You're, you're a literary person. So there's a story going on. Of, of the idolatrous servant nation, their rejection in chapter 48. Within the rejection chapter, the substitute servant, the new servant, speaks for the first time in 48.16c. And then there's a progression of his call in the second song in chapter 49. Uh, he's somewhat frustrated, he tells us. Uh, in verse 3 of 49. Then, of course, we all know the third servant song. He offers his back to those who beat him, etc. And then the escalation gets us to the fourth servant song. With the idea, then, that in, in 5417c, um, I spent way too much time on this, you can tell, um, you have the only use of servants plural in okay. 40 to 55. Huh. And so this is the inheritance of the Avde Yahweh, the, the servants of Yahweh. Their righteousness is from me. 
Naum Yahweh, says Yahweh. So, so God doesn't leave them in their idolatry and their deafness and blindness. Through the substitute servant, he reconstitutes them as a plurality of servants, uh, which again for St. Paul uh, is, is going to be his marching orders because he speaks very uh, eloquently about being justified um, and then being a, a, a servant of Christ. So, and I might just add this anecdotally, uh, the, the editors of the Concordia Journal said they needed kind of a short article for, for this particular edition, and I was very happy to oblige. Um, so what you have in the spring edition would just be a very short um, you know, analysis of the servants, uh, and as it graciously says at the introduction by my picture, um, you can read all about it in the forthcoming commentary <laughs> right, right. in November. Um, yeah, yeah, we all have that to look forward. To. Um, well, and maybe uh, you know, kind of going back to theological confession a little bit, we don't want to just kind of play the trick of okay, anytime there's suffering servant, insert Jesus. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. maybe could you talk a little bit? How can how does Christology kind of inform? the text and how we're interpreting the text so that's not so kind of naive, I guess mm -hmm, I'd say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, I think you actually picked it up, Travis, that there is a story being told of two servants in Isaiah 40 to 55. And, and a, a lot of our pastors preach on these four songs, mm -hmm. uh, I think probably uh, fairly regularly, especially the fourth servant song. Um, and uh, if if the, the pastor is able to kind of locate the story, right. uh, then they're not simply uh, going straight to Christ, but they're telling the story within the Isianic, uh, you know, section of his book. And, and as we all know, then there's, there's more traction, there's more depth, there's, there's more insight. Right. Uh, so that is to say, if, if you have this great verse in 5311, my righteous servant will justify many, see, well, why do they need justification? Right. Um, who are the many? Uh, and um, then you go to 5417C and you really have the, the nice resolution of, of what's happening. Now 56 to 66 goes on and talks about the destiny of this new remnant group of servants. Uh, but that's getting beyond answering your question, so <laughs> right, I won't right. go there. <laughs> well, and let me, I'll, I'll pick up on what you talk about preaching the servants, because mm -hmm. they do play such crucial roles oftentimes in electionary, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. Advent, Lent, and um, so maybe if both of you kind of talk about what kind of shape should preaching take when it's addressing the servant songs? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I've monopolized enough of the time. I'd like to hear what, what our, our expert homiletician has to say. Well, this is done without any study of the servant songs. Sure. So, I mean, that's kind of a problem with trying to answer that question. Um, but I, I like the, I, the idea that um, I, I think sometimes we, we tend to uh, approach Old Testament texts as if they're, they're, only, uh, they're only value for us is that they prove that, that Jesus is the Messiah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And, and it sounds like what you're doing is you're helping us discover 
uh, the, the value of these texts within their own historical context mm -hmm. um, and within their poetic context, mm -hmm. um, how, they, how they actually shape the imagination of the Jewish people in exile, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and how that shaping of their imagination creates certain expectations, creates certain ways of life, creates certain responses to the world around them. And, and so you're gonna spend a little bit more time, I think, in mm -hmm. textual exposition laying out that. Um, and then as you're moving to your own people, I think then you can begin to delight in um, how our imaginations are, are also shaped by the fulfillment of these things uh, in Christ, and mm -hmm. particularly with the, uh, being baptized into him, being counted as part of this uh, new Israel. Would mm -hmm. that be a way mm -hmm. of saying sure. it? Um, sure. And thinking of that, because I don't think, I think that sometimes we don't really see ourselves as connected to, to Israel. Mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of mm -hmm. just happened in the past, and now we have the Christian religion for us. Mm -hmm. and. and mm -hmm and having a much larger picture of the salvation history, the story of God's work in the world. Mm -hmm. These are things I think would start to come out of that. Mm -hmm. That's just mm -hmm. a, a small attempt. <laughs> exactly what he said. I have no further comment. <laughs> no, the only thing I would add is that um, each of the four servant songs has uh, epilogues attached to e each of them. Um, so those are kind of the explanations of, of what these are all about. And again, I didn't know any of this until I you know, started digging into things. And, and this is a consensus of scholarship. So, so if you're preaching, for example, on the fourth servant song, and you ask the question, what does this mean? You'd go to chapter 54. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and let that begin your initial way to unravel the enigma and the poetry of the text. Uh, just so if you're preaching on uh, the third servant song, you'd go to uh, uh, verses 10 and 11 in chapter 50. And once you're kind of tied into this, and, and the other texts are you know, in, in the uh, particular article here, but once you're kind of tuned into that, uh, you're not immediately going see, to a New Testament interpretation, which is all neat, right, and salutary, but you're, you're again understanding it within its initial context. And then the, the payoff for the preacher here is that it doesn't sound like a sermon from the New Testament. Right. It right. actually has the, the uh, fiber and, and, and the, uh, the texture of an Isianic, um, you know, proclamation of the kingdom. Yeah. Well, in that sense, you know, we always talk about scripture interprets scripture. Mm -hmm. And it's, what I hear you saying is Isaiah interprets Isaiah. That's it, very well put, Travis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like Thank that. You. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Well, I guess that's just kind of a foretaste of the feast in uh, the spring issue of the CJ. And um, so thank you so much, both of you, for being here. And thank you for joining us once again on Concordia Journal Currents.